Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the God of today and that anything God did in the Bible can and does occur today? Hi, I'm Kent Hunter, founder of Church Doctor Ministries, and I'm not sure I always believed that. When I was younger and when I was at seminary, there were some areas of God that I pretty much relegated to, I don't know, past history. Not now. Those two were the first two of 95 Theses, and I welcome you to this third episode. We have now been through an introduction in episode one, and in episode number two, we went through the first 13 of the 95 Theses, and that brings us to, in this episode, beginning with Theses number 14. Ministry is the primary calling of every Christian. Let me say that again. Ministry is the primary calling of every Christian. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that ministry is not just relegated to the pastor and the staff, but that everyone is in ministry. Technically, in Scripture, that has been called the priesthood of all believers. That was outlined by Martin Luther 500 years ago as he tried to reform the Roman Catholic Church and get back to the Bible. And he basically said, everyone, according to the Bible, everyone is supposed to be a minister, which means that every Christian is supposed to be in ministry. Well, there may be people that say that in a church, but they're pretty hard to find those that actually live as though ministry is the primary calling of every Christian. There are very few churches that operate that way. We've got pastors and staff people in churches, depending on the size, maybe just a pastor or a part-time pastor in the smaller churches. In larger churches, it might be several pastors and numerous staff. These people are working their tails off doing ministry. And often in these churches, there's this subconscious understanding that as a Christian, I come to receive from these ministers and I put in an offering, financial contribution, to pay for their salaries. And that's the way it works. That is not the way it's supposed to work. Do you know that there are two basic elements of Christianity that are hallmarks of every revival? One is this issue of the priesthood of all believers, that everyone is a minister. Everyone is to be discipled to be a minister. Everyone has the self-identification of being a minister, a person in ministry. The second one is related to that, and that is every individual Christian has spiritual gifts, and we'll get to that at another time. But those two items are clearly the hallmark pillars of every revival. So if you want renewal for your church and revival in the land, you need to clean up the drift that has occurred where people think that the real minister is a person that gets paid full-time or part-time because ministry is the primary calling of every Christian. You know, I've worked with churches where they really have tried hard to raise up the priesthood of all believers, 
For example, I've been with pastors who have worked hard to train, disciple people to participate in hospital ministry. So what happens? People are completely discipled into hospital ministry and the pastor's out of town. The pastor says, hey, you've been discipled to do this ministry. Would you call? We've got this person in the hospital from our church. Would you go and call on him? You can do it. You've been properly trained, implying you are part of the priesthood of all believers. And the person goes to the hospital, walk into the room of the person they're there to visit. And the first thing the person says is, where's the pastor? They want the real pastor who can really pray and get through to God to visit them. And the second thing they think is, well, if you're here for the pastor, or if you're here doing the pastor's job, what do we pay the pastor for anyway? Well, according to Ephesians 4, you pay the pastor as well as evangelists and teachers and apostles and prophets, those kind of leaders in the church, you pay them to equip God's people for the work of ministry not to do ministry. Can't you just see how far the church has drifted? Come on. Look at your own church. Unless it's absolutely exceptional, and if it is, let me know. I want to visit there. We might bring groups there in one of our immersion excursions. But in most churches, this is like, are you kidding me? That people should be trained to do ministry? Look, here's the point. The people of the church who are gifted in the various areas when they know their gifts and are discipled into those areas to do ministry, can do more ministry in their spare time than any staff people can do working 100 hours a week. It's just a fact because it's the way God designed the church. Thesis 15, equipping Christians for ministry is the primary calling for pastors and church staff. I don't know what your agenda looks like today if you're a pastor or a staff person in a church, but if it doesn't have 90% of it covered with equipping people for ministry, you need to go back and read Ephesians 4. Come on, man. Do what the Bible says. Be an equipper of God's people for the work of ministry because this is killing you as a staff member or a pastor. This is killing you as a church. It's killing you. You're robbing people of God's kingdom joy of ministry. Number 15, equipping Christians for ministry is the primary calling of pastors and church staff. Do you know of a church anywhere that follows that one? And can you look anywhere in scripture to prove it wrong? Come on. Number 16, the primary way pastors and staff equip Christians for ministry includes on the job discipling. That means basically you do what Jesus did. He found some guys and he said, come follow me. So pastor, staff person, it isn't rocket science. It's simple. Just talk to a person in your church. Once they know their gifts and once you know their gifts, which is part of your job and say to them, come follow me. Or in today's jargon, it would be, hey, would you come out and hang out with me for a while? I'm going to do some hospital calls or I'm going to do some nursing home ministry. You don't start out by saying, I want you to come with me because I'm going to train you over the next few months and then you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. Anybody would be smarter than that. Jesus himself didn't do that. 
good model. He didn't say to the disciples, come follow me and hey, you know what? You'll be representing me in front of kings. You'll be in jail for me. You'll be crucified upside down for me. How many takers do you think he'd have? <laughs> not very many. And I'm not too sure about the mental ability of those people that would follow that kind of approach. But we do it all the time in churches. We want to recruit people to be Sunday school teachers and go from zero to a thousand miles an hour in one step. I've never been a Sunday school teacher. Hey, we need Sunday school teachers. We need a Sunday school teacher for the third grade. So walk into that grade and for the first time in your life, start teaching 100% by yourself and be responsible for those children and their salvation. And by the way, don't be too concerned about it. Come on. It's in the Bible. It's on the job equipping. So here's what happens. Number 17, when pastors and staff equip God's people for the work of ministry, the impact of ministry multiplies. It just multiplies. When staff and pastors do ministry, it adds. But nothing about the movement Jesus started is about addition. Nothing. Nothing. It's all about multiplication. That's the miracle of the movement. That's why it's a movement. Sadly, we have dramatically drifted from this approach. So number 17, one more time. When pastors and staff equip God's people for the work of ministry, the impact of ministry multiplies. Number 18, when ministry is multiplied, it extends to the social networks of all of the Christians in the church. When people are discipled in a ministry, they don't just do it when they get a call from the church office or an assignment from a staff person or the pastor. These are people that once they get it, they've got it. They don't just take it off when they leave the building. They have it. So if they're able to be discipled, to call on someone at a hospital, when they have a friend in their neighborhood who has anything to do with your church, and they're at the hospital, and these people go and visit them, they're not just going to do the normal thing that most Christians do, which is what most secular people do, just chat with them and say hi. And as they leave the room, maybe, maybe if they're really biblically minded, say, yeah, we'll be praying for you. No, these people are going to be on it. They're going to be ministry to these people. And that's what happens. It happens when ministry is multiplied to the social networks. And I'll tell you what, if you don't do that, if you don't reach that level where you have everyone a minister or the most of your people that are ministers and know it and do it, and they're working in their social networks among unbelievers, you will never, ever experience revival. God is miraculous, and he's the one who brings revival. But he's got to have people that are willing to be revival in order to have revival. That miracle does not happen in a vacuum. And so... We need to recapture this approach that Jesus himself used. When ministry is multiplied, it extends out to the social networks of all of the Christians in the church. You want to do something interesting sometime? You ask all the people in your church to give you a list of all the people in their social networks. All of the people, Christians and non-Christians. And you might even take it with two different labels, those that show no sign of Christianity and those that go to church all the time. 
And what you're going to discover is how many people are in the sphere of influence of your church, and it will blow your mind. It will. And those people that are unchurched in the social networks of your people, when you talk about the fruit of a revival, that's the low-hanging fruit. It is ripe as can be. Why? Because they have a relationship with your people. But the relationship doesn't mean anything if your people aren't equipped to be ministers to those people. Get it? Number 19. The primary mission field for your church is the sum total of those within the social networks of those in the church. So when you look at mission fields, it's not some ring around your church on a map that goes out a mile or whatever. and got anything to do with that. It's the relational issue that is the basis for movements, not miles or kilometers or something like that. The primary mission field for your church is the sum total of those within the social networks of those in the church. This number 19 continues, second sentence. The secondary mission field for every church is the rest of the world, which requires a secondary sending strategy. So if you're going beyond your social network, you have to have a sending strategy. That sending might be cross-culturally in your same area. It may be across town where people consider it beyond their neighborhood to come to your church. It may be to start a smaller church because some people think your church is too big and too shocking culturally to come to, and they have a fear of that great big building or whatever. It may be to move out of the church building entirely and do what the movement called Fresh Expressions does, and that is start in a home, do church in a home, because there are some people that just aren't going to come to a building, at least not at first. So number 19 again, I'll read the whole thing in case you're taking notes. The primary mission field for your church is the sum total of those within the social networks of those in your church. The secondary mission field for every church, your church, is the rest of the world, which requires a secondary sending strategy. People need to be sent beyond their social networks. They would be sent to people they don't know. And there are certain spiritual gifts there. People are good at that. There is special training for that, discipling for that. But that's the way you got to look at your first and secondary mission fields. Number 20, evangelism is not a committee or a program. It is a spiritual gift given to only some by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. You don't manufacture them. You don't work for them. You don't learn about them and then all of a sudden adopt them. It's God at work. Jesus is the head of the church. The Holy Spirit is the one who ignites spiritual gifts. And so with one of the many spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, the evangelist or evangelism is not a committee. You won't find any committees in the Bible or a program. Evangelism is not a program. I know churches have evangelism committees. God bless them. I know churches have some evangelism programs, but sadly, the people on those committees or in those programs, no one has a clue what their spiritual gifts are. Nobody really knows where they have the gift of evangelism. And so a lot of those committees end up talking about evangelism in the church basement 
forever, or they push people who are very committed to go out but may not have the gift of evangelism, so they go through trauma every time they go out to do evangelism, following some outline or prepared whatever. But if those people had the gift of evangelism given by the Holy Spirit, then they would actually love to do this. And if you don't have the gift, I don't have the gift. To me, that's a miracle. The people would love to do cold call, share the gospel outline, whatever, and seek a response, decision, whatever you want to call it, from people and pray with them and see miracles happen. Believe me, if that's not your gift, you look at that stuff and you say, wow, that's out of this world. It is. It's in the kingdom realm. It's a spiritual gift. It's a miracle when people use their spiritual gifts, no matter what the gift is. Number 21, let's take the other look. Okay, we got a few people in the church. By the way, that number is around 10%, according to our research. About 10%, one out of 10 people will have the gift of evangelism, and the rest of the people don't. So don't push those people into a full-bore ministry of evangelism. They're out of their gift mix. That's not even the way the Bible organizes it. And number 21, on the other hand, Every Christian is a witness. A witness is one who tells what God has done in his or her life. I'll do it again. Every Christian is a witness. A witness is one who tells what God has done in his or her life. You don't have to have a PhD to get this. You know what a witness is at a trial. Somebody who gets up and testifies. Wonder where that word came from. Well, it came from testimony. What did that come from? It came from the Bible, like most things that are really valuable in this world, and it means being a witness. Witnessing, not the same as evangelism. Witnessing is not following an outline, not quoting Bible passages, not telling Bible stories, not reading the Bible, and not necessarily plowing for a conviction, but it is simply sharing what God has done in your life. And every Christian is a witness. Even people who have the gift of evangelism. Everybody is a witness. Everybody has stories. And if you're aware of those stories where God has moved in your life and you have them sort of cataloged in your mind, and you come across somebody at work who's not a Christian and they are friends with you and you've known each other for a long time and they take confidence in you and tell you about something that's going wrong in their marriage or their family or their life or whatever, and you have a parallel story from some time in your life and it led you to read the Bible or pray or go to church or anything that is spiritual, you have a story. And anybody that's been a Christian for a while, 10 years, you got dozens of stories. You just aren't thinking about them. You're not practicing them. You haven't cataloged them in your mind. But if that person at work comes up with a story and you've got a parallel story, then it's as simple as that. Yeah, Joe, there was a time in our marriage where we had trouble. Yeah, we had some difficulties. Yeah, it was because of money, just like you. You know what? That's when we went back to church. We've been away from church for a while. Or that's when we went to a Bible class. Or that's when we started reading the Bible. Or that's when we started praying together, whatever. And you know what? I really believe, Joe that God got us through that. I really do. End of story. Let Joe feed on that. Because if you pull out a Bible and take a reference out of the Bible and read it, Joe can say, well, that's uh, maybe sacred for you, but that isn't sacred for me. I don't believe that. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. But if you tell me something that 
really happened to you and you really experienced God doing something about that in your life and it changed your life, then the worst case scenario that I would have about that as a skeptic is curiosity. I'd want to know more. Think about it. It makes sense. Of course it makes sense. Jesus wouldn't say, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He wouldn't say you all will be my witnesses, even though some of you are evangelists. You all will be witnesses of me. He wouldn't say that if it didn't work. Of course it works. That's not the issue. People just don't know to do it. Number 22, when Christians are equipped in the culture of witnessing, they tell their God stories in response to the needs, hurts, challenges expressed by those in their social networks. So when we say social networks, that means we're not talking to strangers. Although if a stranger starts a conversation that gets personal, they're not a stranger anymore. So don't rule that out. Maybe on an airplane or on a train or whatever. I'll read it again. When Christians are equipped in the culture of witnessing, they tell their God stories in response to hurts, needs, challenges expressed by those in their social networks, the people they already know. This is not hard to do, not hard to train people. Here's what I did as a pastor. I taught a Bible class every Sunday between the services, and I just came to Bible class one day knowing this issue about witnessing, having learned about it. I just said to the class, before we start, I know we always start with prayer requests and a prayer and all that stuff. Now we dig into the Bible. But before we get started, anybody want to share what God has been doing in your life this last week? And of course, everybody looked at me like I'd come from some other planet or had something very strange for breakfast. And nobody raised their hand, of course. And I didn't expect that because you don't change culture in an event. It takes time to change culture in a church, in people. And so if you understand culture, you work as a cultural architect. And I know how to be a cultural architect because I train pastors and church leaders to be cultural architects. So I didn't think anything of it. I said, okay, that's no problem. Let's go. Any prayer requests? And then we did prayers and started the Bible study. Next week, anyone want to share what God's doing in your life? Nobody again. Same thing. Nothing. Third time, anybody want to share what God's doing in your life? One little old lady. Third row back on the left. Out of 50 people, one little old lady sheepishly raises her hand just a little bit, half hoping I'll see it and half hoping I won't. And she shares in not very smooth paragraphs or sentences, not the best communicator at all, been kind of a mumble jumbled way of saying what God has done in her life. And boom, the culture had started. The next week we had a couple. Fast forward four months, I had to cut it off at 15 minutes because we couldn't get to the Bible study. Then, after another year, without saying a word, it spilled over into life beyond the church. And our church literally began an explosion. And we grew and people couldn't even figure out where they were coming from. That's what happens. You know, just trust me. Trust God. This stuff in the Bible is like the real stuff. All right. Number 23. Christians learn to share testimonies, which we call God stories, when it becomes the culture of their church. Christians learn to share these testimonies called God stories when it becomes the culture of the church. And that's exactly what happened. It happened in this church that I pastored. I know you can do this. 
I've told churches about this. I've had people start to do this every time a group meets. Before we do whatever they're there to do, before we do that, anybody want to share what God's doing in your life? Whether they do it or not, doesn't matter. The first several times, sooner or later, somebody's going to get the idea. You ask this question every time we get together. And that person's going to have something that happened in their life. You don't make it a program. You don't do that stuff. You just make it the culture. And pretty soon, they'll start to do that out in the world. And you have the beginning of a movement, maybe for the first time in the history of your church. Number 24. Last one. Christians become effective witnesses when they learn the signs of receptivity, the fertile soil. You know, Jesus talked about soils and the seed of the gospel and all that stuff and the harvest. Yeah. So Christians become effective at witnessing, especially when they learn how to be good listeners, when they learn the signs of receptivity, the fertile soil. When is that? When people have challenges, needs, problems, when they go through change, when there's a struggle in their family, a death in the family, a birth in the family, a retirement, major changes of life, all that stuff brings people into receptivity. And if they're not believers, they are more receptive then than they are at any other time. And if you know how to witness, you can bring it home. Trust me, you can do it. It starts slow. It starts small. It's a small seed planted in fertile soil. But I'll tell you what, God grows it. God grows it. Well, that's episode number three. And we've covered now from 14 to 24 of my 95 theses in this one. Hang on for the next one. The excitement will continue as we look in episode number four at my theses 25 through 33. And say I'm crazy if you want, but just check out your Bible. See you next time. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.